News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast in the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Christina Greer. Hello. Hello there. Hey. And Katie Onan. Hi. Hi. A little later in this episode, you're going to be hearing my conversation with Craig Gurian of the Anti-Discrimination Center, who just settled the lawsuit his group filed way back in 2015 against the city. The agreement with the city, federal judges signed off, reduces the share of affordable apartments set aside for existing residents of a given community board where a building goes up, which had been 50% down to 20% now and no more than 15% after five years. That's a big shift to a system that many critics said aggravated long-existing patterns of racial segregation here. But now, let's jump right in with Katie, running down just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York City. Paul Vallone, the deputy commissioner of the Department of Veteran Services and a former council member and son of former council speaker Peter Vallone, died of a heart attack this weekend. The Queen's public servant, who was just 56 years old, leaves behind a wife and three children. The Department of Justice found that Andrew Cuomo had harassed employees and created a sexually hostile environment in a settlement with New York State announced on Friday. In statements from a lawyer and a spokesperson, the former governor, a Democrat, attacked the settlement between New York State and the Biden administration as, quote, a political hit job, end quote, that's, quote, not worth the paper it was written. Ahead of a vote Tuesday where the city council is expected to override Mayor Adams' vetoes of two bills, one to ban solitary confinement and the other that requires the NYPD to log more information about public stops, council members joined the police for a ride-along from precincts on Saturday. One council member, though, who backed out of that trip is City Council Public Safety Chair Youssef Salam. He was one of the first to agree to the ride-along, but his car was briefly pulled over on Friday while he was inside participating over Zoom in a meeting with council members. Salam said in a statement that, quote, this experience only amplified the importance of transparency for all police investigative stops because the lack of transparency allows racial profiling and unconstitutional stops of all types to occur and often go underreported. The NYPD later said that his car with Georgia plates had been pulled over because of its tinted windows. Chrissy, there is a lot to unpack here. So what's your read on what's happening in what seems like an increasingly hot war between the administration run by a former cop and the city council. Right. Is anyone ever a former cop? Just as a question. I feel like it's one of those things. Is it like a Marine? Always. Yeah, once a cop, always a cop. Sort of, you know, the way you always address someone by their last title. You know, when you meet a state senator or, you know, former mayor, you still say mayor, you still say senator. So I feel like Eric Adams is always going to be a cop. But before we get into that, I do want to just say, like, extend my condolences to the Valone family. Um, Peter Valone, uh, senior, was the first politician I ever met when I moved to New York City post-college. And I worked for Local 371. Diane Savina was my boss. And uh, it was during the election season and all the candidates were coming to, you know, meet with labor bosses and kiss the ring and all that good stuff. And uh, Alan Hevesy rolled through. I mean, these are just names that obviously people who've been in New York for a while know. Um, And, you know, coming from Queens, as Katie can appreciate, I just... There's a there's a little grit there, and I, I really I liked Peter Valone, and I kind of met various Valones over time, and it is a family of public service, and so I just wanted to sort of give my condolences to all of them, actually. Yeah. Um, since it's just it's 
Adulting is hard. I'm just realizing, you know, I'm dealing with the few deaths of friends' parents. And so you just realize it is, um, we talk a lot about what people are and are not doing. But there are a lot of people who are trying to make a way for this city and do their best. So I really appreciate that. So that being said, let's shift some gears. Um, You know, this was the scenario that I feared, and it makes me nervous, that we're kind of getting bogged down in petty nonsense. And then who loses? It's the citizens of New York. So, you know, Katie, you'll walk us through the chairs debacle. But um, literally, you know, and for our listeners, when we were talking about chairs, I was like, wait, are we talking about chairs of committees? Are we literally talking about chairs that we put our our cheeks in? Uh, And it's the latter. But with... Yusef Salam and the city council debates, but also like this stop. I'm of several minds. I mean, on the one hand, you're a New Yorker, ostensibly. You represent New York. I need you to have some New York plates. Um, And if that's the case, then that also means that your car should be up to code, which is we have tinting rules for a reason here in New York. That being said, so that's, that's on him. He needs to do it. I think identifying yourself when someone pulls you over, if you are an elected official, I think that that's kind of standard procedure. I mean, I think it would be weird if he didn't. Um, but the fact that the cop was like, okay, nothing to see here. When he says, hi, I'm, I'm a city council member. Why'd you pull me over? And the cop just walks back to the car. If there was an issue with tinting and Georgia plates, like if there was an issue, I don't understand why the cop didn't say, hey, your your windows are are incorrect or improper. And so like, say why you pulled me over. So it does go to the the bill that, you know, the mayor is vetoing and the city council most likely overturned the veto, which is like, do justify why you pulled this black man over in a, in a nice car filled with kids. I mean, it is, to me, a potentially traumatic situation when you get pulled over by a cop and your parents are in this vulnerable position. So I just feel like him announcing himself saying, I'm a city council member, I, I would think that if there was really a problem, would not the police officer say, okay... Thank you, Councilmember Salam. Just so you know, your car is not up to code. But the fact that he just like walks away, sort of like, I don't want to deal, makes me wonder, then why did you pull him over? Was it a code violation or was it just sort of you guys need to make a quota because it's January 28th um, and it's the end of the month? And we all know what the end of the month looks like for Black people driving cars. So that's kind of where I am. Um, and I'm I'm curious to see with this overriding of the veto, whether or not, you know, I was very optimistic, uh, Katie, while you were working, uh, Harry and I joined Ben Max on his podcast, and I was relatively optimistic after the state of the city because of the tone that the mayor struck. And I was really worried that he'd go there guns blazing, like, you know, defiant and petty and petulant. And he wasn't. And so... I don't know where we will go in the next few weeks because this feels like another ember on the very fragile house that could go up in flames. Well, I have heard from people familiar with the matter as of this morning that um, today Yusef Salam has New York State registration. I will say Jeff Colton, friend of the pod, we saw him back in June when he won the primary and he had Georgia plates. And we told him then, you got to get New York plates. So I felt a little like a foreshadowing. Um, of course, you know, that wasn't the only reason he was pulled over, but I think it's it just adds to... I think it adds to this overall fight between the council and, and City Hall, and that will touch upon all of these things, where I think City Hall, and it's not just the mayor, but everyone who works for him, I think they like to present as if they are the adults in the room, and they're the only adults in the room. And the city council, all the trial of the city council, they should really read this bill that they wrote themselves, and they don't really know what's going on, and that kind of thing. 
and it will will bring this to this chair to debate, right? Uh, what happened? What so for people who I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you you are at least a little bit familiar about what happened. But on Tuesday, city council was supposed to have a a rally outside. That was um, what Speaker Adrian Adams said was dispelling some of the myths about these two bills, particularly the How Many Stops Act. It was supposed to be outside, but because of the weather, they moved it into the rotunda. This sort of coincided with the mayor's off-topic Tuesday, which starts at 1130, but around 11, people start queuing up. And, you know, I went outside to go to off-topic Tuesday, and I see the mayor's detail, very upset about this crowd of people, like, what's going on? You can't just do this. So there was a sort of question of why are all these people in here? And then I saw a facilities manager at City Hall with a handcart and Manasha Shabir, the mayor's deputy chief of staff, following him out. And I kind of knew at that instant what was going to happen. And that is when I captured this on video. He, Manasha, goes up to people sitting for this press conference on the chairs that were already set up in the rotunda and said, get up, let's go. And they were reporters. I don't think he was trying to... Uh, interfere in journalism, right? And I just think anyone whose butts were on the seats, he would have told to get up. Could have been a child, could have been a pregnant woman, could have been an old lady. It, I don't think it would have mattered. What they were thinking was, these are our chairs. They are, who, how dare these council members who we share a building with use this shared space? And I will say what has been pointed out to me, and which I know, but someone said, this is sort of a, a, a part of a larger pattern. The mayor will sometimes have a press conference on the day of the city council stated meeting, which creates a very chaotic vibe. I don't know if that's on purpose, but it's been done before. So there's a lot of stuff that happens when you're trying to share the space. So as Menasha is telling these people, come on, let's go, get up. Those are our chairs. Those are our chairs. You know, I said, what are you doing? You know, well, I, what I really said was, are you kicking reporters out of the chairs? He denied it, even though we, we saw him trying to do it. He later then told me they're not the council's chairs. I said, what does that even mean? Do you have the purchase order? Like, it's your chairs? You you paid for these yourself? You're like, who, what do you mean? It's not, it belongs to the building. So that, again, it's so petty and silly and childish, but it speaks to this larger issue of that is City Hall's sort of MO. Like, we're the adults. They can't just have a press conference. What are they doing? And the mayor said when he was asked about it at his press conference, we need to keep order. We don't want any disorder in City Hall. It wasn't that disorderly. Cop Adams. Cop Adams. You always, that, that, yeah. once a cop, always a cop. That's the title. When he said that, like, like if, if they have the chairs, it's anarchy. That, that's why we had to intercede here. It, it, it was just the most cop-like statement. Now, here's a question, though, Katie. With someone who clearly needs, I know that he's like down many staffers when it comes to like comms and things like that. Is this also, is part of the chaos the fact that he needs to actually have some upper level hires to actually communicate and coordinate with other facets of the job? No, I don't think it was a communication. I mean, they were saying that the city council did not properly communicate they were having this, but it was a last minute decision to move it inside from the steps, which are now reopened inside because of the weather. I don't think, I think it may be, it's like there's too many upper level staffers, you know, it's like mm-hmm. all these people. And I will say that the other thing is I was told that it was Manasha Shapiro who was the one who was trying to flip votes. So I'm thinking, does this get you to your ultimate goal, right? right? It's always like, what is your, like, keep your, what does the mayor say? Say hus. I can't believe, hustle, stay focused, grind, right? Your goal is to flip votes so this veto override doesn't pass. And instead, you're wasting energy by trying to, before it starts, disrupt a press conference. Just let them have their press conference. Let And then the best part was they wouldn't turn the lights on. So the press conference was partially in the dark. 
you know, you watch the the footage. You can't really tell on TV because when they interviewed people after, TV has their lights, right? But there are these big, I studied lighting in college. I don't know, big spotlights in the rotunda that the city hall side refused to turn on. And, you know, the staffers, they just work for city, they work for the building, they work for DCAS. They're just following orders from the people in charge. So I watching this, it was so petty and childish. And I'm just thinking, so does this actually move you further away from trying to get council members on your side? A task that I thought should have been done before the vote was taken of, hey, we don't want this. We should, you guys, if you want, if you vote against this, we'll do something. I'll, you know, which is what politics is. Yeah, you want more money in your budget? We'll see what we can do for you. That is what politics is. Instead, it's this last minute frantic, you know, oh, we're going to remove the chairs. You know, it's craziness. So I don't know. You're, you're a powerful person, you know, deputy chief of staff to the mayor of New York City. You want to act silly? I have been mocking him endlessly because honestly, that's what people in power, when they act silly, they deserve to be mocked. That's just sort of like, I can't believe that was actually done. You know, like you don't own the seats. Actually, the taxpayers own the seats. Right. So. But the fact that we're talking about freaking chairs, like focus up, you know? I mean, I feel like we've got bigger fish to fry than the mayor getting into chair wars with people trying to do their jobs. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, what, the media is complicit to some degree, but I think there's a larger story here, right? Like this is how they act. This is what their whole thing is. And um but this goes to the, like the bullying cop persona that right. I've always had an issue with where I, I just feel like that's the primary identity and there's no kind of executive gravitas that's taking hold and on a consistent point, basis. And just one brief point, I was on on the ride-alongs on Saturday, but I did find it, and I, I confirmed this with a reporter who was there, all the council members wore bulletproof vests, but they didn't give any vests to the reporters. So I thought, if the police really thought something bad was going to happen, oh wow, they were not that concerned because all the council members had their vests on, not the reporters. I was like, you know what? I don't know oh, if this wow. is intentional. That's like going on a cruise and only half of the people getting life vests and the rest is like, well, you know, good luck. Yeah, I don't know if it was intentional. It's banned on the Titanic vibes. Um, <laughs> the, the whole Black and Latino caucus declined the ride-along invitations that put out a statement. Yusef Salam was part of that, being like uh, uh, some of the terms Katie's talking about. We we, we do understand what we're doing. We're not going to play into your press event, having already voted, and we're not going to be talked down to. But what makes this snob, speaking of small stories that sort of telescope, so interesting to me is there's very little ambiguity about what happened. Um Yusef Salam is in this council meeting on Zoom, in his car, with wife and his children. Uh, you know, Georgia plates, tinted windows. This cop pulls him over. He says, I'm a council member. I'm doing city business. And the cop says, uh, we're done, and walks away. Um, that's from the footage, the body cam footage the NYPD has put out. There, there's a second cop there, and maybe we don't have the whole exchange. This is all 60 seconds and nothing much. And there's a powerful eye of the beholder part of this that speaks to the bill and these questions of police transparency. Uh, the, the NYPD and the PBA and the mayor are saying that this is a perfectly professional, exactly right stop and how things should happen and what should happen when somebody identifies himself as a, as a city official. As Chris is noting, right, maybe, maybe you're telling what the reason for the stop was so this doesn't happen again. 
before walking away. But we don't have the whole exchange. Maybe they did. Right. And so you, you can you can read it that way or you can read this as it's very easy to recategorize things in paperwork to have these exchanges that happen all the time. And even when nothing happens, which is generally the case, can feel a little scary and traumatic if you're a kid in the car. And it would be helpful to know uh, how, how this is happening and how often. And by the way, the NYPD is already required to put this paper in about every traffic stop. So it metaphorically relates to these questions. This fight is about level one and level two stops, which are lower level encounters with members of the public. Uh, NYPD people keep saying that, like, if somebody wants to take a picture, ask for directions to a parade, do we really need to identify who this is and guess their race and so on? But and, and they're not wrong, by the way, about the guessing the race part, like everyone doesn't get asked. Uh, you know, the NYPD is filling this out as that they do in other forms based on their perceptions. But uh, that's not true. It's actually that, that there's some police purpose for that interaction. The bill, despite what the mayor and his office is saying, is perfectly clear on that. And the, the push now, and it is very weird this is happening after the uh, bill's passage, right, rather than before. Um, and, and Adams was going off. He was talking to a real estate group. He's like, why haven't you been stronger on this? And these are his allies. And, and the head of the group says, well, because you've never brought it up before. Um, th there's something that seems weird and backward here. And I'm reading the post and how if this happens, the terrorists will have won. Think about the Chelsea uh, 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 pipe bomb guy. Do you really want them doing paperwork at the end of the shift? It just, it seems to me weird and bullying and off-putting without getting to the desired result. And I just don't see the path there. Salam, last thing I'll say, also put out a statement with Adams where they flat out said uh, the mayor is not telling the truth about what's in this bill and calling his push, including a weird animated feature from the NYPD and all the stuff going out on official city channels, uh, propaganda. Uh, so, you know, Adam said in the state of the speech, I love you, whether you want it or not, Adrian Adams, we're partners, we're going to make the city better. He did seem like he was trying to reset, but this seems like such an aggressive and again, cop-like tone in which you don't understand the paperwork. You don't understand what's happening. Anything you're doing that, that, that would offer some sunlight here is actually a threat to public safety. And if you don't get that, you're the problem. It, it just, the, 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 there's a disconnect here that seems like it's getting worse. And I, I'm very interested to see what happens, assuming that they do override the veto with the NYPD actually collecting this paperwork and doing this uh, this reporting. The, the other concern, of course, being that right now, because you don't have this paperwork on, on the low level, level one and two stops, you can hide what should be level three stops there. And now that you are reporting those, if, if this is some sort of revelatory or useful new information, and that'll take a couple of years to figure out, or if, as the administration is saying, this is just lots and lots of information that's only telling us what we already know. Lastly, if what we, we already know turns out to be what we already know, which is that most stops are happening to black and brown New Yorkers, and you have an endless debate about that, and if this relates to good police work and where complaints are coming in, or is, is, is proof of prejudice. And this gets to all, this one little stop to all of those big issues, and who's playing politics and who's bullying who. So... I'm very interested to see how Tuesday plays out and what happens afterward. I'll also just briefly, what I find interesting is when I hear the mayor say, Adrian, I love you no matter what. It seems like a little toxic, you know, not to sound like um, 
like a relationship advice person, which I'm not, but just the tone of it of you're insulting this the council body. In in I mean I will say he was asked last week if he viewed himself as an equal to the if he viewed him his legislative body as a mayor and then the council as equal. I will note that Deputy Mayor Fabian Levy started laughing, but the mayor had a very good response of, you know, I think all my elected officials are equal. But I think when you are doing this behavior that's my elected officials. Yeah. Well, well, I guess all of the state, you know, he he had a very fair answer. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know what at all. And look, they the the council overrode the city FEPS voucher veto, and the city then said that we're not gonna do it anyway. So there's always ways around this. Yeah, I mean, we'll see tomorrow what happens with this. And, um, you know, the co- the council has remained incredibly confident that they'll pass this easily and then the mayor can work from there. Um, yeah, I I think the, the one positive is this will at least be over for a little bit. That's the good point about the veto override bill. It'll be done with because it's been this weeks long of, you know, back and forth. And then what, what reporters get are these like texts from people at City Hall like, you know, it's sort of like this berating tone of you guys don't get this. Not so much from the members of the council and staff, but usually from City Hall. Of you know, so what's rolling down be- the pike after this, though, Katie? So, you know, these two bills will most likely be overridden by the council. That'll be a win for Adrian Adams and the council. What other big legislative issues are coming down the pike? And do you think the mayor is going to do what most efficient people do, which is get your ducks in a row before the meeting? Like, rule number one, never roll into a meeting not knowing what the votes are. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to his legislative affair. Um, I don't know what they were doing. But yeah, I think the budget. We're going to be doing budget negotiations and figuring out what's going on and that I think will continue. And look, I mean, the other thing I guess down the pike is if we see any other serious challengers to the mayor and and how we react to that. But the budget is what I'm looking at and and these negotiations that will begin with the council, especially because they continue to believe that the mayor faked a budget crisis for his own personal gain. And by personal gain, I mean like political gain. Last thing here, speaking of challengers and supporters and the mayor andrew cuomo has said he's not gonna run against eric adams but he's also been talking a lot about a city in crisis and these things um we had this justice agreement that came out coincidentally i'd assume right after cuomo had uh, his latest op-ed hitting the biden administration for failing to do enough on immigration how how does he fit in at this point, and how much does this latest report, sort of reiterating previous ones, matter that he says is just part of this vast conspiracy that now extends from Tish to June Kim to uh, the Justice Department to Biden? First of all, sit down, Andrew Cuomo. Nobody's checking for you, and this kind of like trying to make this. I mean, it's not even circular argument. I mean, he's pulling in these, like, vast conspiracies of, like, this is all Tish James underpinning, underworkings with the Biden administration, and he's pulling in city officials. It's like, your time has passed. I know that you were a public servant since, you know, God knows what age, and you've been in Albany, and yes, you have been raised in captivity. But it is time to create a new chapter for yourself, reinvent yourself. But it can't be this sort of sour grapes 
failed politician who's like chomping at the bit to get back into business. Like figure something out, but like this is not a Cuomo moment, especially when the DOJ is coming down and saying, oh, and by the way, here are all these other things that, you know, maybe didn't come out in the wash the first time around. So it's like, don't ruin your legacy. You did a lot of great things when you were governor, but like you're staying at the party too long and nobody wants you at the party anymore. Get that through your head. You you represent the past. You and your family have been great public servants, but you're not the future. And I think that that's hard for a lot of people to recognize that you don't represent the future. And if there is, if you still do think that you have good ideas, this goes back to what we were talking about last week. Then mentor people. Find new people that can put forth your ideas. Why do you think I'm an educator? This is going to be like Chrissy Greer's infiltrating New York City for decades to come, long after I'm there, right? So it's like, that's the point. So think about what's in front of you, not the past. And I think he's just, he represents yesterday and he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that like no one is asking for this. The old Chicago adage, we don't want nobody who nobody sent. Nobody has sent for you, Andrew Cuomo, not in this instance. Yeah, I haven't been able to follow their tweets about how everything's a sham. I just, you know, I like to get down with conspiracy theories, but reading about them, but this one I I couldn't. Um, they said Cuomo wasn't interviewed and that, in effect, justice was just to do their own investigation. They say signing off on the, uh, the Tish report, which they say forced, Cuomo now says forces him out of office, of course, he resigned. But speaking of past, present, and future, that's a nice transition into this conversation with Craig Gurian of the Anti-Discrimination Center as the future of affordable housing lotteries in New York City, where there are hundreds, thousands usually of applications for every available unit are going to look very different than they had. Let's jump right in. But first, the city's FAQ NYC podcast is supported in part by Bouldering Project Brooklyn, which has world-class bouldering terrain, a heated yoga studio, a fully equipped fitness center, a co-working space, and a dedicated youth climbing room that hosts after-school programming and birthday parties. Go to brooklynboulderingproject.com to find out more. Greg Gurian of the Anti-Discrimination Center, welcome. It was uh, P-15, and the Bloomberg administration, when you launch this suit about community preferences and their discriminatory effects on the city as a whole, it's eight years and two mayoral administrations later, And there's a settlement which changes a big piece of New York City's housing puzzle. Um, It basically takes the the set aside for community districts from what had been 50% to no more than 20% right away and 15% after five years. Do you want to just talk through a little bit of the history of how this started and why it took so long to get here? And then then we'll talk about the... uh, meaning of this settlement and uh what that weaves and uh in terms of outstanding issues and this giant puzzle of making the city decent and available and affordable to uh, everyone here and everyone coming uh sure harry and first of all thanks for having me on um it was actually the bloomberg administration under which the uh 
so-called community preference or what we call outsider restriction policy went from 30 to 50 percent in 2002. It was already the de Blasio administration when the lawsuit got started. But the the, kind of shocking and uh, depressing thing about this is that for a generation, um, everyone actually knew that this was an illegal discriminatory practice because well, you can't go a minute without hearing how diverse New York City is. That's true as a whole. It's not true at the local level. So if what you do is give preference for half of the units um, at the community district level, which is a lot more segregated than the citywide pool, you're going to be perpetuating racial segregation. There wasn't a doubt about it intuitively. And after the analysis of millions of pieces of lottery data that was worn out very thoroughly across sort of every kind of uh, racial group comparison that there is. And I just want to ask about that. I know in their depositions that, that various city hall folks said politically, if you don't have these set-asides, you can't get local buy-in and you can't get things built. And, of course, most of the affordable housing ended up getting built in, in, in certain corners of the city. But did that factor into your legal analysis? Is that is that a significant point? What's that about and what does it mean going forward as, as the set-aside is smaller? Well, um, it re- it really was a a false argument and maybe the most pathetic one of all. Look, the new cap is now the law. Opposing desperately needed affordable housing not only is contrary to the interest of a council member's constituents and of the city as a whole, it's also no more than a futile, childish gesture. It's like saying, if my constituents have to compete on a more equal playing field with other New Yorkers who need the housing just as much, I'll make sure nobody gets the housing. So uh, hopefully uh, most council members won't take that view. I don't think that uh, Speaker Adams is going to uh, uh, stand for that. Um, And, you know, some apologists for the policy would have you believe that council members have no leadership obligation or ability to explain honestly to their constituents what's going on. And, of course, they do have that obligation and ability. And, uh, you know, there are fortunately many advocates who hold themselves out as progressives who have gotten fat off segregation and preserving it. You know, if you say you're a progressive, if you say you're an organizer, if you say you want to support the community, first recognize that analysis of millions of lottery applications show that around 85 percent of households, that's true for each racial group, apply outside of their community district at least 75 percent of the time. Then what you do is not back the status quo, but you organize to defeat council members who want to block needed affordable housing, don't ally in an anti-housing, anti-civil right struggle. Any interest in, in naming names with these progressives and explaining a bit, given that how many people apply outside of their community district and all the information and the lawsuits, something, this hasn't been a concern in most constituents 
what's led those, those named people to this uh, perverse position, as you said? Um, well, I think I'll decline the invitation <laughs> today to um, name specific ones, but there really are a host of well-foundation-funded, community-based organizations who hold themselves out as authentic, authentically local, authentically uh, expressing the view of the Black community or the Hispanic community as though there were uh, one view. And it's been backward-looking. And Harry, the thing that just drives me absolutely insane is we've had these twin crises of affordability and segregation for decades. And the answer of some supposed progressives, too many, has been, let's keep doing things the same way. I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as crazy as having you know, an unsuccessful 30-year war on drugs and saying, let's sign up for 30 more. What do you think accounts for that dependency? And do you see the settlement, which again, does not remove uh, the community preference, but, 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 you know, takes this way down from 50 to 20 and then 15, um, shifting those dynamics by itself, or does that require a separate political push as distinct from this legal binding settlement? Uh, well, I, I, I think it's a combination. One of the things that hasn't been, uh, noticed right off the bat is that for three years starting in march every place having to do with housing connect the system for registering and applying for lotteries will have a prominent notice that says new york city is committed to the principle of inclusivity in all of its neighborhoods including supporting new yorkers to reside in neighborhoods of their choice regardless of their neighborhood of origin and regardless of the neighborhood into which they want to move. The shorthand version of that is all of our neighborhoods should belong to all of us. In the New York City political context, which fundamentally runs on segregation, uh, this is pretty revolutionary. And I'm hoping that uh, some people, more people, will remember what civil rights is supposed to be about and realize that having one New York and dealing with problems on a citywide basis and not continuing to concentrate affordable housing only in a subset of neighborhoods uh, of New York City will be a better way to go. You said the principle, all of our neighborhoods should belong to all of us. And Obviously, this settlement doesn't go all the way there, if that's a final principle, since you do still have a smaller uh, set aside for community district residents. I know that in this settlement, you pledge not to uh, bring any additional suit. Do you see a possibility? Would it be helpful if someone else would do that? Or would you disagree and, and think we've reached a... Uh, a better new status quo that where where maybe that level of set aside is acceptable. Well, what I'm hoping uh, is the the stipulation in order, and it is a permanent binding 
court order. People sometimes forget that. Um, it's not called a consent decree, but effectively that's what it is. And, and that um, means, it, right, that the, the cities agreed to it, that a federal judge, uh, Laura Swain, has signed off on it. It's not a suggestion. Uh, right. It, 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 has, it has teeth. The city has to obey it. It can't even try to do anything else. All of the justification for the, the policy have been excluded as a reason to try to modify the order at any point in the future. We were very careful to have this drawn up so that the 20% and 15% thereafter are caps. The city can't do more than that. And, uh, I think this is going to happen tomorrow, but I do hope that over time, a mayor, uh, maybe even this one, who already knows that any preference in wealthy areas is pernicious, he said that in his campaign, that more generally favoring insiders at all over outsiders, the way the policy did, slows the integrative moves that New Yorkers want to make. Remember, this case was always about honoring the choices that New Yorkers themselves make. And so when you do that, moves desired by outsiders when looking at blacks and whites are three times more desegregating than moves desired by insiders. But moves desired by outsiders when looking at blacks and Hispanics are nine times more desegregating than moves desired by insider. So explain um, what you mean by these desired moves, just so that's clear to listeners, please. Yeah. What, uh, uh, I don't know that there's ever been a case with more detailed data and more detailed analysis data. So we not only uh, found out uh, who named the information about people applying, we were able to determine who was apparently eligible for each unit applied for. And these are millions of applications. So matching up the household size and the household income with the household income ban, the narrow household income ban for any apartment. And so we were able to determine who was apparently eligible. And we looked at all of those apparently eligible applications and uh, did. And by the way, this analysis, which was done by the opposing expert, uh, of which were desegregating, which would be integrating, and which would have no effect. There was no dispute between the parties about it. Uh, and it turns out, uh, exactly as I say, that the outsider moves, the, the ones that apparently eligible applicants wanted to make, had put in for, were much more desegregating. And unless one has the very odd view that uh, segregation as between uh, black and Hispanic New Yorkers isn't important. Like that's a piece of this puzzle. Historically, obviously, the most salient uh, segregation was whites keeping others out of white neighborhoods. And if we have a little time to talk about some other steps. Obviously, there are a lot of parts of white Brooklyn, white Queens, and white Staten Island that have had very little affordable housing development. But all of this is really by way of saying that 
I hope the city itself um, brings that those percentages down, brings those caps uh, down or fully take advantage of those caps. As far as other civil rights advocacy, I think a lot of time has been spent on it. And I think that it's probably more fruitful to think about other advocacy at this point. So, so Craig, I, I want to ask you one and a half historical questions, mm-hmm. um, making sure we then have time to talk about uh, often white areas that, that have had very little, if any, affordable housing and to, to look forward uh, in terms of what the settlement can mean. But, but on the history front, uh, really two parts here. Uh, I'm just interested. I, I was thinking about uh, Mario Cuomo and uh, Corona and Forest mm-hmm. Hills. In that fight, um, I, I'm, I'm interested in what historical precedences you talk about. How we've continually gone back to the hair of the dog in this attempt to to fight segregation as the cities remain very segregated and increasingly unaffordable. Um, the the historical precedents you've thought about uh, uh, the most or that resonated while you've been working on this, and I'm also hoping. So two separate things. You could talk a bit about why the de Blasio administration made all of these efforts through through various procedural court motions and otherwise to avoid any change or settlement and kick this can down the road, which they successfully did to at least the next uh, administration. So the historical precedent has not been uh, terribly encouraging in a, a couple of ways. Uh, one example is what happened in 1969. The State Urban Development Corporation was given authority to override local zoning. Um, that lasted two years until 1971, and it was uh, taken away. Um, one thing that's really happened over time, and uh, the city will acknowledge the uh, disproportionate building of affordable housing, especially deeply affordable housing in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Essentially, uh, there have been active in the last 20 years or so, two different kinds of uh, segregationist approaches. Uh, One is the traditional segregation approach, which is whites keeping others uh, out of their neighborhoods. And that's something that's been so effective that for the most part, the city hasn't even tried to push against that. So it's been more invisible. The other kind is what I describe as this sort of neo-segregationist attitude, which says some kinds of uh, segregation are good. So uh, black neighborhoods are supposed to stay black uh, and Hispanic neighborhoods are supposed to stay Hispanic as though uh, there was some time in 19... 57, that every black person in New York City got together at a big meeting and said, well, let's only uh, live in central Brooklyn, Harlem, and Jamaica. So uh, those are both unfortunate uh, pieces of things. And uh, the good news is that there is existing law that can fight back against that at the city level and at the uh, state level, the stipulation in order specifically mentions that both sides agree that the suburbs have not done 
their part, but that requires political will, which gets us to uh, the de Blasio administration. Actually, this may sound odd. Um, I actually give the de Blasio administration more credit on affordable housing than many other people uh, do. The, the people uh, forget very quickly, but before de Blasio, there wasn't, for example, a mandatory inclusionary zoning. And uh, there was a lot of pushing uh, during the de Blasio administration to make sure that apartments were only uh, matched to the income profile, the existing income profile of a neighborhood. So to make sure that poor neighborhoods would stay poor. And uh, I think properly they fought back on that and all parts of the city should have uh, deeply affordable housing. So, so when you track to to the, the the income by by zip code or neighborhood or whatever, uh, you know the median income in the Upper East Side is much higher. And so, if you're making things that are only affordable in relation to that, then it's not affordable to most of the city. And could you just explain for listeners what mandatory inclusionary housing means and why that was significant? Well, uh, the. What it what it means is that whenever there was a project that required uh, city approval, the rule came into place that you had to follow a formula where a percent of the units um, had to be affordable. There are continuing discussions, obviously, about affordable to whom, and one of the ways that I think that uh, a progressive who hold themselves out as progressives have really lost the picture uh, is thinking of it in narrow uh, geographic terms. What we need to do is to try to meet need for deeply, deeply affordable housing throughout the city and throughout the region. It's precisely the argument of suburban segregationists that say, why should we have affordable housing here those people don't live there build the affordable housing where they are and some of that is echoed with some uh nice uh, progressive sounding fringe uh when it's said in the city context uh the uh, mayor de blasio ultimately was a he was able to see that the city is deeply segregated you recall how when there were disputes about educational segregation, he was able to say that housing segregation underlines that. When he was uh, bragging properly about the pre-K initiative, he was able to say, we were able to change people's minds about this. We were able to use one of his most favorite words to be transformative about that. But he just wasn't prepared, unfortunately, to get beyond the city as a mosaic, uh, to use the Dinkins term, of racial turf zone that belong principally to one racial group. And um, we've got to do better. So, Greg, with the five minutes we have remaining, looking forward with this shift that's going to open up, hopefully, new affordable housing in different parts of the city and make more of this affordable housing available to New Yorkers across the city. Do you want to talk a bit about the uh, 
white neighborhoods that have had very little affordable housing to this point. And the other parts of this bigger puzzle, you know, I think a lot about how property gets taxed and what a great deal this is, for instance, for homeowners in Park Slope, like the mayor, uh, like Mayor de Blasio, rather. Um, uh, Eric Adams also is a uh, Brooklyn property owner. Um, uh, your view of the, the picture going forward and uh, having achieved this settlement, hopefully some uh, some causes for optimism about what may change in the city's development patterns with it. So again, I think the first thing is that if New Yorkers, actual New Yorkers were listened to more, we would make more headway on this idea of we're all in this together. New York belongs to all of us. Let's be finished with this turf nonsense. At the same time, by the way, of making sure that there are serious, concrete anti-displacement measures in place so that if someone wants to remain in place, he or he can do so. But you've had a period of decades where affordable housing development has been focused on Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. You've had since the 1940s, NYCHA development focused in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. You can look at a map. NYCHA has a map with a dot for each uh, NYCHA development. There are huge areas of white Brooklyn, white Queens, and white Staten Island that have zero dots. So how do you fix that? You don't simply take your thumb off the scale like we've gotten the city largely to do with uh, the resolution of this lawsuit. You deliberately and explicitly focus housing development on those parts of white Brooklyn, white Queens and white Staten Island where there's been very little affordable housing development. Those data are available where there's far less NYCHA housing than the citywide average and where the black the population uh, in the community district is less than 5%, of which there are quite a few community districts in New York City. And so uh, it'd be great if that were mayor-led. Uh, it'd be great if that were uh, council-led in uh, accordance with Speaker Adams' fair housing framework. But that's certainly one thing uh, that you want to do. And uh, let me just mention a couple of other things that I think uh, would be uh, quite helpful. Um, one is working on beefing up the mayor's 24 in 24 plan that he's just announced that is uh, repurposing uh, city properties. There are city properties, obviously, all over the city, um, including most notably schools. And we understand that it is possible, and there are examples in Manhattan where you can have a mix of a school and residential development that needs to be brought. We need the political will to do that. That's a golden opportunity. Um, and finally, uh, I think it would be very helpful to at least pilot something where the mayor and the controller, yes, the two of them together, uh, cooperate to experiment with the city itself being the developer 
of a mixed income condo development where the majority of condos are market rate and quickly return the city's capital investment and throw off without having to deduct for private developer profit cross-subsidy for other units that can be held by the city to be rented out as subsidized rentals, including deeply subsidized rentals. And just on this point, Harry, just think about all of the condos that have gone up in New York in the last 10, 15 years where the number of affordable units are zero. I mean, that's shameful. How is it that nobody thought this is a problem that needs fixing? So that's that's another one that's high on the list. Obviously, a, a personal goal is to make January sunny again, but that's a different uh, that's a different subject. Last one here. Those are uh, those are political goals. You're uh, you're an attorney. You're the head of the anti discrimination center. Um, are there legal levers that you see at this point that might help? move the city toward those goals, either by uh, by, by pushing politicians, uh, by, by reaching a settlement or a ruling, or, or otherwise having, you know, just, just invested uh, a decade successfully in this one cause that, that you're looking toward or thinking about. Yeah, I think that uh, one thing that I would like to focus on is the role of the suburbs here, because uh, this is, uh, segregation is a regional problem and most of the surrounding suburbs especially the ultra white uh, towns and villages have done nothing either to help on affordable and therefore done nothing to help desegregate before there are existing uh, legal tools both under federal law the fair housing act under a state law doctrine called uh, Berenson, which has to do with every place taking on a fair share, and also a doctrine called uh, City of Monroe, which explicitly allows for the overruling of local zoning when there is a more important interest. So actually, um, the city itself um, has the ability to challenge uh, localities on these questions under existing law and um governor hochel uh does as well even if the state legislature remains as retrograde as it's been in terms of uh, making any change greg uh, much more to discuss here uh thank you for taking the time and coming on faq nyc thanks for having me uh harry and uh let's hope we can move forward in a, you know, more actually progressive, more productive way. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is headquartered at The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. You can find it all freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc. Or you can chip in to support that work if you'd like to at thecity.nyc slash give. The podcast receives support from PT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side, with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. 
FAQ NYC is also an affiliate of the Colin Powell School at CUNY City College, where I, co-host Dr. Christina Greer, is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars Inaugural Fellows. And we're an affiliate of the Flaming Hydra Newsletter, a collective of 60 writers and artists, including Harry Siegel, delivering a cooperatively owned new newsletter to your inbox that you'll actually want to open. See more and subscribe at flaminghydra.com. Our hosts for this episode were me, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara, and thank you to our guest, Craig Gurian of the Anti-Discrimination Center. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, be warm, I think, and we'll be back soon with more.